And so this is one thing, I mean, Trump, he, he, he never has a negative word. I mean, he, he'll say negative about somebody else. He's going to, you know, sure. slow, slow Joe or sleepy Joe, whatever. He's going to put him down. But everything about him is upbeat. It's the best. It's the greatest. It's the most. The um, biggest. So <laughs> biggest. Yeah, exactly. So this is, this is, and he has this kind of focused um, tunnel vision. And he says it's a, it's a kind of controlled um, neuroses in the sense that he's able to cut out everything else other, uh, except for, you know, what he wants to happen. He, keeps his eyes on the prize as it were right and this is the one this is one of the things where you know you can see he just he just deflects everything around him that is not part of how he sees things and he and you're exactly right when you said that he he decide he decides what's real yeah and this is why the whole idea of in the early days when people were trying they were flabbergasted that he was lying so much and trying to catch him out and it didn't matter yeah that he lied he knew he was lying he, he, he was doing absolutely but he was saying I I I decide what's real in this town <laughs> yeah right In this episode, I speak with Gary Lockman. Gary is a, a really prolific author. He's the author of 21 books on topics ranging from the evolution of consciousness to literary suicides, popular culture, and the history of the occult. Of course, digging into the studies of existentialism and the philosophy of consciousness and how that infiltrates or influences politics and society. Another really interesting thing as well is that uh, he was one of the founding members of the pop group Blondie, and in 2006, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And the two books that we talk about in this interview were published more recently. The book that was published this year was The Return of Holy Russia, Apocalyptic History, Mystical Awakening, and the Struggle for the Soul of the World. And the book that is really the main focus of this interview is Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. When I took my little two, three-week break here from the podcast, I really got into Dark Star Rising, and it was incredibly fascinating. I'll talk about that in just a moment. You know, considering that we are coming up on a U.S. presidential election, this episode will be released, I think, the day before the election. So that it was really appropriate to discuss contemporary politics through the lens that Gary presents in his books, uh, particularly Dark Star Rising. And as that subtitle suggests, it's very provocative, magic and power in the age of Trump. So, you know, what pulled me in when I started to to learn about Gary's work in that book was thinking about what influenced Trump early on in life in regards to how he approaches business, how he's approached politics as well. And we all have been very familiar now with Trump and his style, I guess you could say, the way that he approaches things for now over what, four years or more. An individual that was very influential in his life early on was an individual named Reverend Norman Vincent Peale. He was a proponent of new thought or positive thinking. The modern iteration of that is The Secret. I don't know if you all remember several years ago, there was The Secret that came out as a book and they made a kind of we joke that it wasn't really a documentary, it was more of an infomercial for the idea, but the idea that through sheer will alone, if you concentrate on what you want in the world, your will alone can manifest 
that into your life, that reality itself will rearrange itself and present to you the, the very thing that you are that you are desiring. And what Gary does in the book is he starts from there and digs into the history of that, which has a lot of occultic ties. And he also gets into chaos magic. It's another concept that he lays out in his book. And it fits really neatly within the era that we are in, something that we get into. It's an essay that Gary had uh, published on his website. Uh, The title of that is Trickle Down Metaphysics from Nietzsche to Trump. Uh, Talking about Nietzsche and how Nietzsche, of course, was very famous for writing about how God is dead. You know, we have entered into this time, which has been defined as postmodernism, or as it's also been called, the post-truth era, that in a lot of ways we've entered into a time where truth is very much up to the individual and very much up to uh, your own subjective understanding of what that is. So from Trump to Putin to Alexander Dugan in Russia to Steve Bannon here in the U.S. and uh, we talk about Richard Spencer and the alt-right and all of that. We get into all of this in this episode. I felt like this was a really interesting angle as far as discussing what's happening here in the United States in particular with this upcoming election, where it feels at least that so much is on the line, while simultaneously it feels like nothing's going to change as well. It's a very confusing, anxiety-inducing moment to be in here in the United States. The general atmosphere is that of, of anxiety, of not knowing what's going to happen just even a few days from now, you know, that sense of uncertainty. That is a part of the ways in which these politicians and these other individuals, I think they, they assert power through that sense of uncertainty. The more reality is ambiguous and kind of malleable, the more beneficial it is for them, because then they can steer it and turn it in different directions. Anyway, this subject is just incredibly fascinating to me, and Gary's work is just really, really good. He's able to dig into the esoteric history of politics, just all of these different subjects, and see all the ways in which these individuals have influenced and have gained power and influence in a time like this. It's just so fascinating. It's it's very good, and the way he presents it is really it's readable, it's understandable, and allows you to learn a whole history that I personally I just had very little understanding of, if any at all. So I really recommend that people check out. Dark Star Rising, as well as his most recent book, The Return of Holy Russia. If you want to learn more about Gary, you can go to his website, garylockman.co.uk. I'll be putting a link to his website down in the description. Also be putting links to his social media, uh, which I think mainly is through Twitter, at Gary Lockman, and that's L-A-C-H-M-A-N. If you want to learn more about my work specifically, you can go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. If you would like to support my work monetarily, you can do that through Patreon or through the one-time donation through PayPal. Uh, if you go through PayPal, it's paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. You can make a one-time donation through that. Or if you want to support my podcast on a regular basis, you can go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness, and you'll gain early access to these interviews before they are released publicly. All right, everybody, thank you so much for your attention. Here is my interview with Gary Lockman. Let's just start. Let's just start it. Let's just do this. This is always how it goes. Is, uh, you know, I'm like, all right, we'll just have a nice little chit chat before we jump into actually recording something. And before we yeah. know it, we're actually talking about the interview yeah, itself, you, forget, you know, the content. You forget, yeah. 
You forget to press the button. Yeah. Oh, I've done that too many times. It's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> still, I've been doing this for years. I still forget to hit the record button. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, Gary, thank you very much for doing this. Thanks for responding to my interview request and and for being willing to, to have this interview. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, you know, as I said before we started, I mean, I was, I was just going over how my main exposure to your work was through your book, Dark Star Rising, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. Uh, I know that you've uh, published some work since then, which we can get into at a certain point. Um, I'm less familiar with that other work, but uh, mm. I think it would be great if you could, uh, you know, illuminate us and explain, you know, how all these different subjects are connected, at least to you. Um, mm. But yeah, you know, as we were saying, you know, even though this book, uh, Dark Star Rising, was published, was it 2018? Just a couple years ago? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, two years ago. Yeah. So, uh, the fa- well, first of all, I appreciate the fact you're willing to revisit that. And we were also saying how uh, we're approaching, what, what is today? October 27th, uh, mm. recording this. So the election is on November 3rd here in the United States. It's uh, less than a week away. Less than a week. That's, that's crazy. Uh, mm. uh, as far as time goes, I just feel like this whole year has been... Or just about a week, yeah. Just about a week, yeah. It's like, mm. I, I think the quality, I was thinking about this because we're, we're approaching the end of the year. And I was thinking that since, especially since the pandemic started... Um, time has felt simultaneously grindingly slow and also Mm. so fast that it's hard to really like keep up with everything that's happening. It's this strange pull that I, I I don't know how to quite explain or define because it really depends on the day, uh, Mm. where I feel like things are moving so fast that I can't even keep up with it. And then also feeling like the year's never going to end. It's, it's very strange feeling. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, you know, we got this election coming up and it seems very consequential. It seems like one of the most consequential elections in, at least in my life. Um, and, and I wanted to talk about your book because I think what, what my impression of reading Dark Star, uh, Dark Star Rising is like, it's like, there's like the surface reality, which is the, the politics that we see and all the maneuvers that are being made by politicians and, and the media and all these different players. Um, there's like that surface level quality to it, which all of us tend to pay attention to. But digging mm. into your book, there's like, it felt like there was an ocean of forces. Like there's something underneath the surface that is informing all of the decisions and the directions that these individuals, mm. these policymakers and politicians are making. Um, in particular, when we talk about Trump and uh, the alt right or the far right, mm-hmm. um, that was my real feeling. Is like di- like like I was diving into an ocean that mm-hmm. I I couldn't quite. Uh, you know, I just had no idea that there was this sort of seething force underneath this whole political landscape that we're all engaged in in some way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Does that make sense to you at all? Uh, no, well, I'm glad. I'm yes, yes. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to evoke that, uh, or my the book was able to evoke that sense in you. Because uh, I mean, yes, I mean that's kind of the, in one sense, uh, n- not to put a kind of conspiratorial kind of slant on it, but um, there is the sense that yes, you have you know the everyday world and politics we're used to, mm-hmm. but then oh, we entered this phase where all these other things seemed. Uh, well, it struck me as many things that were on the fringe of culture um, right. uh, and, and society suddenly were kind of center stage. Right. And uh, I mean, the premise of, well, th- the idea for me is that we, we entered 
this period where from a variety of different avenues, the notion of reality or there being a stable reality or a stable truth, you know, with a capital T or reality mm-hmm. with a capital R, that's available and objective and verifiable, you know, for everyone, you know, uh, that, that, that kind of um, got flipped over. And this one of the key uh, examples of that for me was Trump. This because after Trump, we, we that's when we start hearing about post-truth and right. alternative fact. Okay, yeah, fake so, news. And yeah. it struck me from a variety of different uh, um, sort of sources. One of them is kind of postmodernism. Uh, this notion of you know, the, which itself says there isn't any stable reality. It's all you know, um, different philosophies and beliefs are temporary, and you can put you know, adopt them and drop them, and you can change around. You can you can throw bunches bunch of stuff together and see what happens, and it's all this kind of playful. You know, right. uh, let's not take it too seriously. It's all manipulable, and then um, Trump himself is a devotee of positive thinking. Mm-hmm. which you can see is a, a kind of form of magic. It's kind of mental science in the sense where you use your imagination right. um, to visualize some outcome in the real world. Um, so he, he, uh, so that's another way in which reality is malleable and, and uh, you can manipulate it you know, um, towards your own ends. And then this, what really got the book going was that um, my editor, uh, Penguin at the time, asked me if I, you know, what did I think about this? Is that... Uh, this is what I start the book with. Is this is back in 2016 after the election. Trump won the election, mm-hmm. and um, Richard Spencer, who you know was the the head of the alt right then, and I mean I don't even think we hear about these people anymore. I mean I personally have not been you know I, I haven't had my ear you know to the yeah. to 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 the uh, the web and ooh is it still going on that kind of thing. But they just they seem to have dropped out all of that all that kind of scene. But at the time back then, 2000, you know, leading up to the election and then uh, he was in the news and uh, this whole idea that, um, well, he, he gave this, this talk at the national, the annual meeting of the national policy Institute NPI, which um, was considered by many to be a sort of white supremacist organization and at the Ronald Reagan building. Um, and he starts this, this meeting by saying, hail Trump, hail our hero, hail our leader, things of that sort. You know, we made mm-hmm. this happen. We mm-hmm. made this dream come true. You right. know, we, we made this, we made this, we made this a reality. And um, all that was picked up by the regular uh, news, you know, um, uh, media and is on CNN and all that, because the people in response were giving these Hitler salutes and all this kind of thing. And But um, there was a blogger um, uh, uh, who um, wrote about the New Age, uh, a fellow named Harvey Bishop, and he pointed out that it sounded like uh, uh, who, who wrote about the new th- about new thought, which is a sort of variant of positive thinking, or, or it's it's under this the, the same kind of umbrella, mm-hmm. this kind of mental science, you know. And uh, he said it sounds like the alt right and Richard Spencer are, are saying they they've used new thought techniques somehow to get Trump into office. Mm. So I, I thought, okay, so I, fo- <laughs> I follow I followed this up. And then the strange thing was like from that I learned that Trump was a devotee of positive, uh, you know, positive thinking, um, which is a branch of New Thought. And then also other things started to um, turn up that mm-hmm. um, started to make this kind of pattern of a variety of different sort of what you would call magical or occult kind of influences behind, you know, working in the background and. Um, uh, 
the, the kind, what do you want to say, the sort of uh, the instrument that uh, Spencer and the alt-right were supposed to have used was uh, on the internet. And right. they had this this uh, meme of Pepe, you know, Pepe the Frog, you know, right. who, who starts out as this this innocuous kind of slacker amphibian, but um, he goes over to the dark side when they get a hold of him, and he becomes this kind of symbol or, or sigil or a kind of magical kind of meme um, that is helping Trump get elected, and they saturate the internet with all these images, and then the idea is that reality is supposed to echo or reality. If, if, if we make it happen on the internet enough, it'll bleed over into the real world and so on. Right. So, I mean, uh, I just saw other things, you know, that were part and parcel of that, and not only in the States, but also in Russia. Right. So that, 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 that was kind of like, yes, there is this, all this stuff happening, but it's not like there's a cabal, I'm not saying there's a cabal of, you know, kind of uh, black magicians behind Trump doing this. It's just that there seems to be, from a variety of directions, different ways of thinking that um, uh, uh, it's going to celebrate the loss of this notion of a kind of stable, fixed reality, that, that it's, it, it's available for those who know how to manipulate and control. Right. Yeah, no, I, I got that real sense. I, I, I appreciated that as like, I, that people could maybe read it and be like, wow, this sounds like some vast conspiracy theory. But the way you approach the subject isn't like that at all. It's just how actual reality works, which is that uh, <laughs> we influence one another. And some people have enormous influence with their philosophies and writings and, um, and uh, it informs the general... Like I was reading an essay you had published on your website last night, um, and you were talking a great deal about Nietzsche, um, oh, right. and how he uh, he had predicted very very accurately uh, that we were entering an age of of nihilism essentially, mm. um, and the amount of influence that he had. It's not that he created or he made the the uh, that we you know the West has descended into a state of nihilism mm. he just could read the room so to speak he kind of had that mm, extra yeah. sense of like knowing where it was leading and that in turn influenced other philosophers to to kind of elaborate on that point and maybe take it further so in a general sense i mean you can't say that all these philosophers are in a conspiracy to like you know to uh no, no it's it's you know yeah. sorry yeah. No, I was just gonna say, just like it's not like they're in a conspiracy to like undermine the values of Western civilization. They're just observing something, and then they they put those ideas well, out they, there. It's, it's not like it's well for Nietzsche. Nietzsche it was was uh, very disturbed by this. It wasn't like he was right. celebrating it. Right, right. And this is like a, there's a lot of misreading of Nietzsche, and he gets appropriated, and 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 so on. And and the sad thing about Nietzsche, the tragic thing, and the prescient thing is that he knew this would happen. Right. But in his last days, when he was you know in his last days of sanity. Uh, he, he wrote in his um, um, autobiography, Eke Homo, which is one of the strangest books ever written. It's a beautiful <laughs> book. Yeah. Uh, but he says, you know, do not mistake me for someone else. Mm. You know, and he knows, and this, that's exactly what happens to him. First, his sister is the first one to do it. And this, I sort of, I, I mentioned that in this essay. No, the essay is called Trickle Down Metaphysics mm -hmm. and uh, from Nietzsche to Trump. And um, it, it's a spelling out of, of, of a phrase I, I use in the book. I just say in a paragraph because I, I say, you know, academic kind of uh, disciplines like postmodern, or well, not, not only academic, but, you know, movements, postmodernism, deconstructionism kind of paved the way for post truth and alternative fact because they, you know, they've been whittling away in the academy 
um, for decades uh, at at the kind of Western, you know, logocentric, fallow, fallow logocentric, um, you know, structure of dead white European male oppression and blah, blah, blah. And this has been going on now for decades. And so it, gleefully they're, you know, deconstructing the notion of this kind of truth that was hitherto or reality hitherto um, kind of, you know, uses an oppression against a variety of other, you know, more diverse points of view. But by the time it, I mean, but the way I tell it in the essay, it starts with Nietzsche. He sees it coming in 1880s. Um, and mm-hmm. he, he writes in his note in his notes that later become it, it, he had this he had this idea for this huge magnum opus he wanted to write um, called uh, the will to power for a while then it was he entitled it revaluation of all values but he never got around to actually writing it but he uh, collected an enormous number of notes and after his when he went mad uh, his uh, sister. Elizabeth uh, basically put put these notes together and kind of said, "Oh yes, this is my 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 tragic brother's you know masterwork." But it really isn't. It, no, it's a fantastic book, but it's it's his knockloss. It's like the stuff that's left over, mm-hmm. you know, that didn't. So, in any case, but in there he says, "I I I, I see this you know um, this the specter on its way, as it were, and and it's it's nihilism and it's unavoidable." And for Nietzsche, the irony is that the very the very pursuit of truth. In both, say, the spiritual, religious, Christian, and let's say the philosophical, you know, Platonic, which later becomes sort of the scientific, has led to this revelation that there is no, you know, objective truth in, in, with the capital T, right, or reality with the capital R. It's all from a perspective, and um, this for him is terrifying, but it's also liberating because it, it, it gives us the opportunity to revalue things, you know, to to have a more for him in each a more adventurous kind of. Um, you know, way of living, the gay science, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the Fröhliche Wissenschaft and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but he knows that it, he's way ahead of his time. And, you know, yeah. there's a variety of different ways in his writing where, you know, Zarathustra comes too early, the people in the marketplace aren't ready to hear him. Or he says in the Antichrist, you know, I, I, I don't write for today or for tomorrow. I write for the day after tomorrow. So mm-hmm. the immediate the the shock of the death of God and you know and and the recognition that um, you know the, the what we would later call the meta narratives that gave meaning to human existence are no longer tenable um, and the, the sort of the hangover from that which is the nihilism is the sense like well if these values were not true then no values are true mm-hmm. and Nietzsche Nietzsche wants to overcome that. But he sees immediately that's not going to be able to happen. So he's 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 speaking out for like a, a few generations ahead, and uh, but the next one who picks it up is Heidegger, Martin Heidegger, the great you know, German uh, philosopher, mm-hmm. and um, he takes Nietzsche's ideas, and um, he too sees this kind of nihilism on its way. But um, its its source for him is is we 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 made a wrong turn at Plato, um, the pre-Socratics. Pre-Socratics were the early thinkers who were open to the question of being. Mm-hmm. They, they they felt the question of being in this immediate, uh, almost visceral kind of way. But then with Plato and Socrates, we start to develop this whole um, uh, attempt to come up with rational explanations for existence and all and all of that and so on and so on. And then th- that's still, I mean, f- it, for Heidegger, it's it's still a kind of burden in the way that it was for Nietzsche. But I mean, Heidegger, um, you know, he's he's in the he's in the university in the ac- in, in the academic world, so he's not 
completely the wanderer out on his own as Nietzsche was, you know, out, out on the ledge, right. um, out on the edge, absolutely by himself. And then by the next sort of generation, the 60s, 70s, you get people like Derrida, um, who um, they even want to go further. So uh, uh, Heidegger said what we needed to do is dismantle Western metaphysics. So we have to take apart Western philosophy uh, and to get back uh, where we made this wrong turn. And by doing this, we will, you know, um, arrive at this kind of pristine experience of being, mm-hmm. um, which he still posits is there's, there's a kind of content that's there. Mm-hmm. There's a something. I mean, later on, he calls it presence on Wessenheit. Um, but when you get Derrida, he even says, no, there's not even that. No, there's no presence. There's just an absence. There's just difference. So uh, it's, it's like a, a completely, you know, white, kind of, you know, everything's been erased off the blackboard right. now. Right, uh, and it's no longer this kind of. It doesn't have this threat, you know, this notion of existential threat that this this idea of nihilism, you know, first had, you know, for Nietzsche, and then you know, it was something to overcome. It's kind of, it's celebrated in a certain way. I mean, I'm not saying Derrida is necessarily saying celebrating nihilism per se, right? But just the the kind of celebratory atmosphere that, that uh, at least my experience of it when I was in university and I was re- reading this stuff of, of deconstructionism and, and postmodernism as well, was that, yes, we're taking down this old edifice of the Western tradition. And initially it's kind of liberating, but then after a while you realize it, it, it doesn't have anything to put in its place. There's no content. Um, yeah. And that's why that's when the kind of the nihilism is kind of like, okay, but by, by our time it's trickled down from Nietzsche's lonely mountaintop to our twitter feeds and you know <laughs> what we watch on television and it's something we just pick up and it's kind of like whatever man oh really you know we're, we're not really i i don't think we're whatever we are now the post everything uh era we're we don't seem um disturbed by the same kind of you know threat that i would say that this this notion of this kind of uh, emptiness um, right. of, of the universe and all that, that we just kind of accept it. And there's a variety of things that at an earlier time seemed to be re- rather troubling to like the existentialists that I, I just feel like we don't, you know, they're, they're not like, oh, what's the big deal? Yeah, what do you think that is? What is well, that? We became, we became used to it. Well, I think we became used to the idea that, you know, that the universe is meaningless. I mean, fundamentally, and in, in, I mean, every science tells us this. Uh, at the same time, it's it, it's it's always celebrating the great mysteries of science and the wonder and awe. And I always think it's kind of, you know, if you watch these science programs, and I'm not against science in any way, but um, I, I think they try to have it both ways. Where if you watch what is it, Brian Cox or someone like that, or well here here in here in, in the UK, and he's you know very enthusiastic, breathless, uh, young kind of, um, you know, spokesperson for science, for the uh, uh, astronomy and astrophysics and all that. And it's all about the wonders of the galaxy and black holes and, you know, sure. nebulae and so on and so on. But then fundamentally, when you actually, you know, the what they say, Stephen Weinberger, who he said it quite some time ago, but still it, it, it's a good one-liner. And he says, the more we understand the universe, the more it seems pointless. <laughs> so I, 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 I just, I, I, I'm not saying don't feel the sense of awe and wonder, but I think, you know, it's hard to kind of uh, collate that with this, you know, the, the message that will actually, it's, it's just, you know, it's meaningless. There's nothing behind it. Awe and wonder suggests that there's some, you know, something. You, you, you don't necessarily have, you can't explicitly say what it is, but it evokes some kind of sense of, you know, 
um, expectancy of something. So in any case, so, um, but I think we just got used to it now, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean like, you know, like big brother, you know, big, big, <laughs> we watch big brother on television, you know, we, before we were concerned, big brother's going to watch us, but we watch big brother. <laughs> well, I think, so, it's, I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just want to say like, like the, you know, what was it several years ago when Edward Snowden leaked or the, I guess Edward Snowden and some several journalists, of course, that, that mm. leaked, you know, the big brother thing. I mean, you're talking about the NSA. We're talking about a massive surveillance state that's mm. been in, mm. been in place for a long time. And certainly at the time it was a shocking revelation. Mm. We mm. were like, we got to do something about this, but I don't think we really, it didn't like a lesson wasn't really learned in my, my mm. sense of mm. it. It's like, we didn't really revolt against the system at all. We just sort of now understand that pretty much everything we do online is being surveilled and monitored and uh quantified and you know modeled mm. and all of that you know uh mm. and we just kind of just like i mean not saying that we're happy about it but we just sort of like eh, i guess this is a good trade-off for being able to use instagram and facebook all the time or something yeah yeah you know? yes yeah yeah some yeah something along those lines i mean it's um you know, well, it's it's not unusual for a later generation to look back to an earlier one's fears as as kind of oh, you know, right, um, kind of funny. Uh, yeah. You know? um, but uh, but I mean, this this is one aspect of it, and then but it, um, the other sides of it is the the this this kind of what do I want to say this 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 sort of uh, activity on the magical or, or, um, kind of occult plane around, around Trump and his fellow travelers. Um, uh, I mean, one of the people that turns up and one of the things that made me feel this was in the, in the beginning of, uh, 2017 in February, that things that were really getting strange was that, um, Steve Bannon, who was still on Trump's, you know, team at the time, mm -hmm. there was a story about him in the New York Times about a talk he had given to a group of conservative churchmen at the Vatican uh, through Skype. He was in L.A., but you know they were at the Vatican, mm -hmm. and in the midst of talking about you know the global uh, Tea Party and you know whatever and variety of other usual things he he, he talks about, um, he he was talking about Putin. And he's saying that he had, you know, sort of, he admired him. He was, you know, wary of him in some ways, but he admired him. And But, but, but he said that, um, he mentioned that Putin had in his sort of circle around him, someone who read Julius Evola. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, most people wouldn't know who Julius Evola was, but I, I knew who he was. And, and he was a um, 20th century Italian esoteric philosopher who was also, um, some of the very far right uh, political um, sensibilities. He tried to ingratiate himself and had some success with with Mussolini, uh, less so with National Socialism, but he tried to do that there. And then right. um, after the war, he subsequently was sort of this uh, eminence Greece for um, different uh, uh, new neo-fascist um, groups uh, rising up in Italy and all that. And uh, so Bannon is name-checking him and people like Spencer and others in the alt-right, Evola was one of their kind of intellectual heavyweights, you know, where, you know, this, this is one, oh, we're not just thugs, you know, we're not just skinheads. Um, we have a, a real, you know, uh, legitimate um, political philosophy right. at work here. And there's a few other people that they mention, Oswald Spangler is another one and, uh, and so on. And, um, but the fellow that Bannon was referring to um, uh, in P Putin's milieu it was this um, fellow named Alexander Dugan, who at the time seemed to have some influence, or at least some of his ideas reached 
do uh, Putin, or, or they seem to. I, I don't know uh, what his standing is these days. Right. Um, but he is this very strange, wild, you know, bizarre uh, <laughs> politico, politico anarcho. I don't know what you want to call it. I mean, he was sort of joined different political groups the way um, you know teenagers used to join different rock bands back, you know, back well, uh, back in the day. Or you know, he you know a variety of different kind of quick change. Um, sorry. No, yeah, I was just going to say what one thing you point out with some of these Russian philosophers and these various individuals you bring mm. up in the Russian context is mm. that Russia mm. itself, like these individuals, there's this quality where they'll go from extremes in their life. Mm. Mm. They'll be mm. like anti-Soviet, anti-communist, and then by the time they're in their mid middle age, uh, you know, they they reach their 30s or 40s yeah. or 50s, they're actually completely advocating for a kind of like re-emergence of a soviet system or something it's just like i I get that people go through transformations but it's just so dramatic yeah yeah Yeah. well that's that seems to be typical uh uh, of sort of russian character in fact the book i did after dark star uh rising um it's called the return of holy russia Mm -hmm. which is about um uh deals a great deal with with that kind of aspect of russian character this kind of uh, sort of absolute yes or no but you know Dugan himself he started out as a a anti-soviet sort of punk in the 80s and later on he became um he was giving he was lecturing uh, the general staff at the kremlin Mm-hmm. So yeah. um uh, I mean this is you know post post soviet uh, but th- he he did that he he you know when uh perestroika and all that was going on and then then the the USSR collapsed he realized oh yes I'm a soviet man but this is another thing you find in a lot of these and even people that were in the gulags yeah. um yeah. who were you know just just uh, treated miserably miserably by the soviet system somehow later they have this um loyalty to it in some way yeah and i guess it's a kind of variation of what they call the stockholm syndrome in some way or something like that so i mean I'm, I'm i'm sure i'm you know russians probably think oh this is all the cliches we hear all the time but right i have to say and this is one of the traits that uh, uh came up uh quite a bit but uh but the thing is he too was someone who um was reading you know he's the guy who's reading evola uh dugan mm-hmm. and Evola was doing in the twenties what Spencer was supposed to have been doing, you know, to help Trump in the sense that he was performing certain kinds of spells with um, a group he belonged to. Uh, to uh, what, what their aim was to in, uh, sort of um, in, uh, inject ancient Roman values into um, Mussolini's fascists. They, <laughs> they wanted them to sort of evoke that kind of sense. I don't know how successful they were. But he, but the same thing, he was using sort of this kind of mental science, this notion of that you can visualize some outcome um, right. clearly and vividly and persistently uh, enough and fire it with your will. Um, you can be able to make it happen. So uh, he was doing that in the 20s. You've got... Uh, supposed to be Spencer and his gang uh, were doing it. And then um, in different ways, Dugan in Russia was doing it as well. So, um, I mean, since then there's, there's been, you know, a variety of different things have come out. I know there's, uh, there's this, the witches against Trump that, that started up yes. well, fairly soon after he was, after he was elected. So, um, yeah. I mean, they've, they've, it's all about magic for the resistance as the book is. It's about it, and you know, it's all about taking a kind of uh, you know, um, 
I know guerrilla war against against it. But I mean, I, it it just struck me again. It was that there was that that aspect of it, this occult magical aspect, and this postmodern aspect, and then and then there's the reality TV aspect where you know again it, it's it's obvious and it sounds like it's a cliche already, but the most popular thing on television is reality, mm-hmm. and that that the interface between the two you know, or, 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 or whatever you want to call it, that membrane became very permeable and, you know, more and more reality was showing up on the television. Right. And, uh, I was thinking, well, I, uh, what I say in the book and sort of, you know, tongue in cheek is that, you know, Trump appeared, uh, because he got squeezed out of the television because more and more reality was going into it. So some of something from TV had to come out. <laughs> and um he he appeared and he appeared and took the same role that he was um performing on on the television show the apprentice yeah so but you know he was he, he in a way he was the apprentice on the apprentice for his his presidency yeah um and in many ways and uh so i mean that again it's another example of this this phenomenon that's that's been going on now for a few years where the you know the real and the simulation, um, you know the imaginary and the factual and all that have been kind of trading places, and it's a kind of ontological shift in some way, or or how uh, how we're understanding reality. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and and that, and you know, it, it's it's across the board in so many in so many. I mean, everything's up for grabs. I mean, we live in the post everything time, and we also live in a time where everything is plausible, but nothing is definite. Yeah. That's that's so uh, this notion that everything is possible. Well, you know, I, which, yeah, yeah, sorry. No, I just wanted to say like something that came up, you talk about Trump being a tele, like his personality and who he was and how he operated mm-hmm. was informed by reality television. And then he kind of brings that approach to his political career as a president. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was thinking of how utterly strange and it's disturbing, but utterly peculiar and strange, right? Or the moment we're in right now is where you have... Here in the U.S., you know, we're seeing a, a surge of, of, I guess you could say, far-right organizing, rise of uh, far-right mm. militias and paramilitary groups. And in response to, one, the, you know, the lockdown to, because of the pandemic, but um, but also because of Black Lives Matter and these kind of these protests for social justice in the wake of police brutality and, and all of that. So we're seeing this right-wing reaction to that. Now, that's all like, okay, we've had this dynamic for a while. That's all well and it's all understandable but then you get this other element of of online culture which is coming from places mm. like 4chan uh you know the alt right and not not well not the alt right specifically but yeah i guess the alt right specifically but all but you know just kind of this far right politics that's lived online on these forums now they're starting to like manifest in our physical reality so you see mm. like i don't know if you've heard of the bugle the uh am i saying this right boogaloo boys have you heard of them before? Um, I've I've heard the phrase, but I I don't know what it is exactly. Yeah, I barely understand it either. I I they don't really have a particular like you can't pin it down to saying that they are this particular have this this political mm-hmm. ideology. Um, they just believe ultimately that we're heading towards a, a second civil war in the United States, and they're kind of a part well, of I this. Mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I I a lot of people here you hear you hear that saying what what's happening in the states. Yeah, and I'm here I'm here in, in in the UK, but it's like, well, what what do you think? They ask me, and I say, well, I don't, you know, yeah, <laughs> martial law, martial law, maybe you know, after yeah. the election and all that, but yeah. um, and I've seen quite a few you know news programs about uh, black militias arming themselves and you know yes. people getting ready. 
for that. So yeah, I was going about to ask you. I mean, what do you? What, how do you feel about that? I mean, what does it? Um, does that seem like a real possibility there, or is it just? Yeah, I think uh, I think one of the extreme. things is people. Uh, when we think of civil war. We we often, at least in the U.S. context, of we think of the you know the civil war of the eighteen hundreds, late eighteen hundreds, mm. which was two sides getting in line to shooting cannonballs and, you know, shooting at yeah, each other yeah. in like, you know, organized armies. And what's going to happen, I think, more and more in the United States is it is going to be very asymmetrical. And I don't know, I don't know how it's going to play out. But I do, I mean, I really do have a real feeling that, you know, Trump is, um, he is directly dog whistling to these groups. He is you know, this is his base. And I think he is uh-huh. instigating, uh, you know, kind of fueling more violence because he feels it benefits uh-huh. him and him and his campaign. Um, I think he's cracking the door open on, a, on an actual American fascism. And it's not going to look like the fascism of the 20s or the 30s or the 40s or whatever. It's mm-hmm. going to be a 21st century version of that. And, and with all the weirdness that comes with that. Mm. So you have a lot of things that don't fit neatly into the fascist definition, but it's, it's basically, that's what it is. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do get this real sense that like, you know, the, as we mentioned at the beginning, the elections coming up here in like a week or something. And, uh, because of the nature of like the pandemic and mail-in ballots. And the fact is that we won't have the official vote count, on election night, like we normally do, it may take several weeks or even months to get a full <laughs> count because of the mail-in mm. ballots, which Trump has already stated he's not going to take that as legitimate. He's gonna he's saying that mm. that's fraudulent already. He's been doing this for mm. quite a long time, so he's already setting the stage to deny the outcome of the election, especially if he loses. Which and he's already been feeding this message to his followers, and they're already pretty well armed. So I do think there will be it's going to be a contentious several months, and I have no idea how it's going to play out. I, mm. I just know, I feel that it's not going to go very smoothly. And I again, I don't know how that's going to play out. It's uh, mm. that that's my sense being here in the United States. No, no, I mean, uh, I'm just, I, I, I would I would say pretty much myself. I, yeah. I um, and I'm I'm no political pundit, but um, sure. I just it just strikes me that it would be surprising if. He does lose the election uh, if he, you know, walks away quietly. But um, yeah. I mean, all, you know, a variety of different things can happen, and I'm, I'm sure there must be somebody who's kind of walked through. You know, okay, this might happen, that might happen. If it yes. goes, if it goes down to the Supreme Court or whatever, the, all that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm sure, sure somebody's worked out all the scenarios. Um, yes, but it's uh, you know, I mean. You look at what's happening in the world, you know, um, mm-hmm. different places, Lukashenko and, uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, other and uh, other places where these strong men are holding on to power. And, you know, you wouldn't be surprised if he says, well, if they're doing it, why can't I? And I mean, the one thing I, 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 I did, among other things, when I was writing the book, A Dark So Rising, was about Trump, is that he strikes me as somebody who always wants to do something that no one else has done. Yep. Or, or the biggest, or, you know, he's, he's certainly someone who has that, he shares uh, what's called gigantomania with other, <laughs> well, with 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 people like Stalin or Mussolini or, or Hitler, in the sense that they had these uh, huge buildings built, or you know, huge structures, or or or, or uh, you know, made the blueprints for them. You know, Albert Speer's designs for Hitler, and mm-hmm. but if you see, you know, any of the sort of the fascist architecture or these huge, uh, huge. 
um, Stalin age structures. They're gigantic, you know. Yes. And uh, I remember one of the first things he did when he, he dropped that bomb. You know, I forget what it was called, but it was like the mother of all non nuclear yes. bombs. It was the close, you know, the furthest he could go <laughs> before the next stage was nuke. nuke. <laughs> he couldn't do that, but he said, okay, I'm going to drop the biggest thing. What's the biggest thing you got? Yeah. So, uh, I always felt that he would want to go out if he has to go out with a bang, as it were. You know, uh, um, something that um, you know, right? Um, no one else has done before in some way. So, well, here's an that, interesting that, thing: that, is I don't know if you've. I know you said you haven't really been paying attention to like Richard Spencer and these kind of far right, alt right types. Well, but I, I mean, I don't go out of my way, but I don't hear right. anybody else talking about them anymore. So right. I just get the impression they're kind, they're they're kind of not you know yesterday's yesterday's news as well. Yeah, I, I just wanted to comment because I think. Spencer does have a Twitter account. I think he did mention, he did say on there that he was actually endorsing Joe Biden as president, <laughs> which was really interesting and people were surprised. Um, How funny. Yeah, but wow. I think the uh, I think the point of that is I, like I don't know. I, I, I just, I guess the point of Trump is whether he stays in power or not. I mean, you know, he got coronavirus recently and a lot of people were like, mm. I hope he dies. And, and I'm like, well, well did I, he? Yeah, did he, he did. Really? Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you hadn't that heard. Wasn't fake, that wasn't fake news. No, I, I, you know. I mean, who I knows, know. right? I mean, you know. Oh well, yeah, I mean, you know, that's what I'm saying. How do you know? <laughs> this is what's so, so. It's uh, part of my language. This is so fucking weird. Just being uh, trying to pay attention to everything that's happening because, like, the co- the 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 similarity of say, like, uh, like you talk about, like, yeah, we don't know if Trump really had it or not. It could just be a big PR stunt. I believe that's very possible. Um, well, I'm just saying it's a, we live in a time when everything's plausible. I mean, yeah, um, I, I'm not saying that's the case. I'm not. I'm saying that <laughs> if I doubted it, how would I be able to verify one way or the other? Exactly. I can only go with, with, with everything that's told me, and that's you know that's controlled and all that. So, well, someone I, who's I, I, uh, you know. someone who's pulled this. I mean, uh, Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil, who's a similar kind of personality. Mm-hmm. I would say mm-hmm. as Trump. You know, similar kind of dynamic there. Um, he, I think he was tested for getting coronavirus like three times and like he admitted he had it. And then his son, who's also a really big political player, Mm. he went on and he went on like Fox news or something and said he had, his father got coronavirus. Then like the next day he said that was all false. Mm. So even though, so Bolsonaro may have gotten it. We don't know. We don't know what's real anymore, and we don't know the reasons for, yeah, that's exactly, that's it. We don't know the reasons for why would why would a world leader like that lie about something? You know, like what kind of agenda is there underneath all of that? So it's like the malleability uh, of reality itself of what's true and what's not com- true. The comeback kid. Yeah. The comeback kid. Yeah. You know, he was down, but he's up again. That's the American way. You know, you get, yeah. you know, that's life. That's what the people say, you know, so um, <laughs> shut down, but you know, all, all that, all that, that, that kind of image or, you know, not, I, I, doesn't have to be that but that would be oh well that that's a plausible explanation right. why one might do that right or 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 you know putin all the shots of him you know wrestling a tiger or whatever it is <laughs> or riding a water buffalo or something he's just showing that he's you know the strong the strong leader and you have to you know again you, you're saying bolsonaro i mean putin he's just written himself in as you know czar vladimir for the next i forget 16 years or something like yeah. that so yeah. Um, Trump must be. I mean, that's one thing I've wondered. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm not an expert on the Constitution, but I, I wonder how difficult it would be to, um, you know, make an amendment to the Constitution where you could have more than two terms or 
Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was put in place with FDR. So, right. Cause he had, he had four terms. And so, um, yeah. Trump may want, Trump may want to, or some people may want to make that amendment. Right. And, um, right. I don't know how it works, but if the Supreme Court is involved in that, then he's got people there that are, you know, on his side and so on. So, I mean, all the, again, this is just a possible scenario. I'm not suggesting it's going to happen. I'm saying right. It's the kind of thing you can start thinking about, like, well, gee, what if? Well, could I, he? Could I, could this happen? You know. Well, I think this whole approach of we don't, you know, we live in a so-called post-truth era, post-modern deconstructionist era, where figures like Trump can come in and basically create such a chaotic situation um, that he can then actually bend reality to his to his will to his benefit well well that that's that's what he's was taught to do exactly uh, being yeah. a devotee of uh, norman vincent peel yeah and that was um, actually uh, that was like my next line of thought was to actually ask yeah. you because so i just want to say this really quickly which is you talk about this individual uh yeah reverend norman vincent peel as being a major influence in, in trump and being a part of the new thought or the kind of hmm. uh, positive thinking now my uh first exposure to this type of thinking was from the secret uh, oh, yeah. which yeah, yeah, my father yeah. was super into and he had me watch. I didn't read the book, but I watched the documentary yeah. about it or whatever you want to call it, you know, the little film about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, even as a kid, I was like, this doesn't... Uh, in, the infomercial. The infomercial, there you go. Because to call it a documentary <laughs> right. doesn't seem right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. But, but just the idea that, you know, you think about something and you think about it positively and you set your will to yeah. it, you know, reality will like rearrange itself to accommodate that. Mm. And... I was like, okay, well, that sounds nice, but I don't know. It just, it just always something felt like was yeah, completely yeah. excluded from the, 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 the whole thing, which was like the systemic reality of the systems we're a part of, which, mm-hmm. you know, like tell a person who's starving to death on the streets yeah, yeah, or whatever, I mean, yeah. like will yourself yeah. out of this, you know? And it just felt yeah. really wrong to me, but, but you get into the deeper roots of this line of thinking, you know, I hadn't known until reading your book that, this has been around for some time, this type of thinking. Mm, mm, yeah. So no, yeah, if I could yeah. ask you about that, just ask you about this individual that influenced Trump uh, and the kind of the, the framework, how, how it works, how, how it, what it is as a philosophy or an approach to life mm. and mm. kind of the deeper roots of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the, the thing is it, it, it um, yeah, the kind of, let's just say practical, uh, utilitarian kind of approach to it, where you know you 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 want some outcome, or you know you you whatever it might be, from a you know a new washing machine to a better job or something. I mean, that in a way is a kind of shallow um, way to approach this. But the notion that in some way our our inner world is um, involved in the world that we we experience outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has a long sort of philosophical and and, and spiritual prestige and i mean it goes back to emerson you know in, in once i mean it goes back to the ancient greeks and hindu philosophy as well but in american context i mean ralph waldo emerson the great american essayist he actually coined the term new thought yeah. uh and he um, has this whole notion about you know um being able to visualize and um create I mean, he doesn't talk about it in that sense, but uh, create your own reality in that kind of sense. But he does talk about the way in which you can have success in the world and, this, and self-reliance. And also the, the notion that our thoughts do sort of shape the world around us mm-hmm. in a certain way. And, you know, Emerson is this quintessential 
American, it's the new world. He's, you know, he's cut, he's cut ties with Europe in the past and all that. And so it, it is a very kind of American can do, um, sort of sensibility. And William James, the great American philosopher and, and, and psychologist in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, uh, it was called the mind cure then. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, sort of a variant of Christian science. But again, it was, you know, the whole notion that what we would call psychosomatic uh, kind of illnesses or, or conditions um, where um, thinking positive thoughts, thinking in a particular way can actually help someone get over um, uh, a you know physical malady, and um, James himself employed some techniques uh, because he had angina and a variety of other sort of nervous conditions. And, and at one point, he even lobbied um, for. Uh, well, he lobbied against. Um, there was the uh, American Medical Society or something like that in Boston wanted to ban access to this kind of mind cure literature because they felt it was a you know a danger to the public and all that and uh james lobbied against that mm. and actually um helped to make it available so it, it has it has some you know and you know, many people Henri bergson the great you know french philosopher in the early 20th century so it, 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 it unless you want to think these people were like you know yeah they were great philosophers but you know boy did they get uh uh, you know, the wool pull over eyes over this stuff. It does have a prestigious background, but yes, it is ultimately very simplistic. And there's, there's dozens of, you know, um, immediate, uh, uh, questions one asks, just as you said, you know, if it was that easy, wouldn't we, you know, uh, be doing it all the time. Right. But, um, where, uh, Norman Vincent Peale comes into this is he, he grew up, he read a lot of this kind of new thought literature, uh, say late 19th century into the early, uh, 20th century. Um, William Walker Atkinson, um, a variety of others. And, um, he gave it a kind of Christian, um, kind of twist. And, uh, he gave these sermons in New York at the, uh, Marble Collegiate Church on, um, Fifth Avenue and 29th street. And um, he had a radio program and then a TV program in the 50s. And in the 50s, he wrote, wrote this book called The Power of Positive Thinking. And it became this immense bestseller. And it's still something that sells quite a bit. But it was on the bestseller list for like two years or something like that mm-hmm. at the top of it when it came out. And um, it, it, it's like a, um, a three-part sort of program, you know, where you prayerize, you sort of pray to God, you know, what, what it is that you want uh, to happen. Uh, you visualize it as vividly and clearly as you possibly can, the outcome actually taking place. And then you have to develop <clears throat> this kind of sense of expectancy where it's already happened. You don't actually have to, you know, struggle and, and, and kind of stress, stress yourself to make it happen. It, it's happened already and, you know, it'll, the results of it will turn up soon. Mm-hmm. And um, th- this was um, something that, Peel was able to get across to millions of readers in, in, in this simple way. And um, it was something that Trump's father was um, very taken with. And he used to take the family to hear these um, uh, 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 his sermons, Peel's sermons. And then Trump himself started going, uh, you know, when he got older. And he had, you know, two of his weddings took place there. <laughs> and he says that, I mean, what, what the, uh, this, this is probably the best kind of endorsement you, uh, you, you can get is that he said after listening to one of Norman Vincent Peale's sermons, he could have listened to another one for another hour. And Trump is not somebody who's known for a, a, a very uh, 
uh, uh, long attention span. Right. So yeah. <laughs> the fact that he he'd be able to sit through another hour, that's saying a lot. So, and the fundamental idea that he took away from Peel's books is that um, facts don't matter. It's our attitude towards facts. Mm. This this is something that Peel got from the psychologist Carl Menninger. But it goes back to the ancient Stoic uh, philosophers like Epictetus. It's not things that trouble us. It's what we think about things uh, that trouble us. Right. So you can control your thoughts. And so this is one thing. I mean, Trump, he, he, he never has a negative word. I mean, he, he'll say negative about somebody else. He's going to, you know, sure. slow, slow Joe or Sleepy Joe, whatever. He's going to put him down. But everything about him is upbeat. It's the best. It's the greatest. It's the most. The biggest. Um, so <laughs> biggest. Yeah, exactly. So this is, this is, and he has this kind of focused, um, tunnel vision and he says it's a it's a kind of controlled um neuroses in the sense that he's able to cut out everything else other uh except for you know what he wants to happen he keeps his eyes on the prize as it were right and this is the one this is one of the things where you know you can see he just he just deflects everything around him that is not part of how he sees things and he and you're exactly right when you said that he he decide he decides what's real yeah, and this is why the whole idea of in the early days when people were trying they were flabbergasted that he was lying so much and trying to <laughs> catch him out, and it didn't matter. Yeah, that he lied. He knew he was lying. He 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 was doing absolutely. But he was saying, I I I decide what's real in this town. <laughs> yeah, right. And you know, and uh, that's how it is. And so we have the birth of post truth and alternative fact. Then, right. Well, I think there's this thing about. Um with the rise of someone like Trump, um, it, it spits in the face of, of uh, I guess, the underlying values of a liberal democracy, which is that mm -hmm. the idea that, like, uh, I'm probably really oversimplifying this, but the idea that the best ideas will rise to the top. If you have the best argument, mm -hmm. the best kind of set of information and data, and you can argue oh. your point well, you will win the debate, and that'll be the thing mm -hmm. that guides you know, us towards yeah. a better future or whatever. Yeah. So uh, we kind of set up a political system around that idea. Um, and, uh, and then you have someone like Trump who absolutely doesn't no. care. You, no. you good, can't, good myth. yeah, you can't argue with him to convince him of anything and his followers won't well, be convinced well, of anything either. All, all of these other, I mean, earlier kind of, you know, strong leaders uh, mm -hmm. um, had a myth and it, it, it was a, um, you know, Hitler, the the race myth, whatever the master race myth, and and um, Mussolini, it was this the kind of uh, trying to relive ancient Rome, mm -hmm. uh, and um, this is um, something that's part of that 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 sort of political philosophy of of um, the demagogue, right? Uh, so it isn't about it, it. It isn't about rational argument. And that, see, yeah, you're right. If you assume that this discussion is taking place in a sphere which accepts you know the the criteria for rational argument and all that right, right. but once once that once that's gone then it doesn't matter anymore right and um, it's, it's i mean i think the thing with trump and this way saying the book um about people like Mussolini and hitler and, and not, not not to you know make the uh, any kind of relation between them that 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 strong or that or that uh, you know uh, uh you know uh, obvious but just the sense that um they they didn't win on rational arguments. They 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 had an emotional appeal. They they fulfilled an emotional need. Yes. They satisfied an emotional need to belong to something. Right. Um, right. And this this is what uh, Trump is doing. You know the MAGA 
movement and and all that sort of thing. Right. And, and right. This, this again, he's in a, in a different way. Putin's sort of doing the, the similar thing. Then it's this not necessarily make Russia great again, but um, he's making all these uh, gestures back towards earlier times, pre-Soviet times in in, in Russia, and trying to regain um, a kind of well. This this is my book, The Return of Holy Russia, is about. He's he's been trying to generate a revival of the sense of this character that Russia had in the 19th century of Holy Russia, that it had this holy mission. You know, mm. it, 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 it was the true carrier of the Christian faith, the true faith, and that's why Russia today is the upholder of traditional values against the decadent, hyper liberal, you know, uh, super permissive West, where everything mm. is available, everything's up for grabs. I mean, reality's up for grabs. Yeah, here. And um, it's just he seems he's just he's the president of the United States, you know. Um, uh, so he's in a position where what he decides to be reality affects, uh, you know, many, many people. Right. Yeah. And I wanted to point to I mean, there, there was a connection. I don't know if I mean, it's a little tenuous here, but, uh, you know, coincidentally, if I could say it that way, is I I had watched uh, Trump's first debate with Joe Biden um hmm. which was apparently a huge travesty I, I wasn't surprised by it i thought it was actually it was entertaining yeah. i kind of exactly what in a way it's it, it exceeded my expectations in the ability of trump to create chaos and then hmm. to wield that chaos to its benefit people think that it was like just horribly embarrassing and all that stuff yeah. and it's the same stuff we've heard for four or five years now um this sort of surprise that he's doing what he's doing but I knew exactly what he was doing. I, I kind of mm. figured out like, okay, this guy's just, he comes into a space, he generates chaos, and mm. then he uses yeah. that chaos to his benefit. Yeah. He throws Absolutely. everybody off balance and then he's able to do what he wants, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, I don't know if this this relates uh, uh, just the word chaos itself, but I wanted to actually flesh out this idea of chaos magic, mm. um, which does feed into this idea. Oh, yeah. Of, uh, well, you know, you talk yeah, about yeah. positive thinking and new thought, yeah. but it's it's they're a little bit different. They're different strains of thought. Yeah. But, but I was super fascinated with the yeah. parts in which you discuss the idea of, of chaos magic. Uh, could you describe this idea and how it works and some of the, uh, the people uh, that well, kind of I mean, generated chaos, it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah chaos magic comes into it. It's it's, it's a kind of do-it-yourself kind of form of magic, um, and it came it came around the same time as the punk um, sort of stuff started happening here in the UK, sort of the mid seventies, and it was kind of like a punk magic uh, mm. in the sense that, um, in, in the same way that Johnny Rotten and the Sex Pistols were saying, "Oh, screw screw Pink Floyd and the Beatles and all that," we're tired of all that you know that old rubbish. These um, what became chaos magicians were tired of all the kind of well there was a more traditional kind of magic people doing sort of you know associated with 19th century groups like the hermetic order of the golden dawn that was more sort of spiritual really in, in the long run it was more about getting in touch with your higher self and 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 things of that nature and these guys they were sick and tired of all that and they, they wanted sort of magic that was power where you can actually make things happen mm -hmm. you know like you know sort of you know make money come in the mail tomorrow or whatever you know, things like that right and um the reason this comes into the story is that the the way that spencer and the alt-right were supposed to have helped trump get elected by using the internet and using this meme of peppy the frog is that this was a kind of um contemporary version of of chaos magic 
in the sense that in chaos magic, you, you, you don't rely on all the traditional implements of magic, you know, the wand and the cup and the sword and, you know, getting the incense right and the astrological, you know, signs and so on. The, all this impedim- kind of impedimenta that is, is part of all the, the rituals is that you make it up and you use whatever's on hand. Mm. You, know, you, you use whatever available. So it's kind of like found art too. You know, if you find something um, in the gutter when you're walking and you take it home and you put it on the mantelpiece, suddenly it's art because you've taken out of one context and you, you know, it's just a right. strange thing there now. So similar kind of principle. And um, so, so a variant of chaos magic was supposedly used in order to help Trump get into office. And funny thing is that as you, as you were just talking about Trump and chaos, it struck me that in some ways Trump has this natural, you know, propensity for chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and in fact, in his, in his, his own self-help books, like The Art of the Deal, he talks about how he likes to keep, you know, um, his opponents on their toes and not not tell everybody what's, what he wants to do and make snap decisions and change his mind really quickly and, you know, adopt different kind of, um, even adopting different identities and things of that sort. And it struck me that he was kind of like a natural kind of chaos magician mm-hmm. in, in, in that sense. because he, he and, and also like creating a sense of glamour you know, creating creating a kind of an illusion around him to to impress and and affect people, and you know he has all that background from um, he was involved with uh, uh, professional wrestling, right? And on the real, reality TV show, um, and and the other thing is that there, there are some similarities between positive thinking, new thought, and chaos magic, even though in many ways they're they're poles apart. Um, chaos magic much more radical and transgressive and, and positive thinking and new thought tends to be more sort of spiritual and uh, even religious in some way. But they're both goal, goal, they're both results-based. They're goal-oriented. Mm-hmm. It, you, and, it, and it's practical. It's utilitarian. You want something to happen. Uh, I think in um, positive thinking, it's, it's an achievable wish. Uh, and in chaos magic, it's a... Uh, uh, a realizable reality or something like that. I'm, I'm mixing it up a bit, but sure. the phrasing okay. is very similar and, and, and the steps and how you make it happen. And very much what you were saying there with Trump sort of creating chaos and then somehow being able to use it to his advantage. And this is something that chaos magic does as well is there's uh, it's, it's I, I, again, um, the difference between it and more traditional magic. It, it, it isn't about the eternal, you know, it, it, it isn't about, um, you know, the true reality that, you know, through meditative practices you can reach and become aware of, it's very much, it very much embraces the postmodern uh, notion of everything being temporary right. and, and shifting, shifting all the time and, you know, moving around. And so it embraces that and it somehow learns to be able to manipulate the currents, the chaos currents that are around. And so, uh, and the other thing too, again, it's, it's, you can't wish for something that couldn't possibly happen. It has to be something that you could actually make happen but there's something in the way. There's just some little obstacles that are stopping it from happening. So it has to be something that could really happen through normal means, but you need a little help. And um, yeah, it's a way of manipulating the kind of currents uh, of opportunity that are moving around all the time. And um, so there seems to be, to me, uh, again, I want to point out that I'm not saying Trump is a chaos magician. I'm not saying chaos magicians are in favor of Trump. The ones I know, you know, would, uh, would be repelled by that. And so I want to make that distinction. It just seemed to me there's a similarity uh, mm-hmm. there. And also, 
again, this fellow Dugan, who's in Russia or, you know, was uh, within earshot of Putin and, and, you know, some of his ideas were getting to him. He's very much into chaos magic. Um, he adopted the eight-pointed chaos star as this kind of sigil or symbol for this um, kind of Russian youth movement that he started and a variety of other things like that. Hmm. So, again, there's a crossover, you know, um, yeah. um, between groups playing around or whatever, seriously trying to use this stuff here and also um, in that part of the world too. Yeah, and I think this ties into what we were discussing in the beginning where kind of the age of nihilism or sort of deconstructionist um, approach to our reality. It, I can't remember how it was said in your book exactly that chaos magicians, they kind of nudge reality in a certain direction mm. or they can push, mm. they, yeah. they aren't like, whole cloth creating a whole cloth new thing it's just like what is around us and how can we affect change and move it mm, in the directions mm. that we want it to move in um yeah. and well, it's, it's kind of like the, the i was gonna say it's kind of like the butterfly effect in some yeah. ways you know the butterfly flapping its wings makes a whatever a rainstorm in in arizona or whatever so uh it's that kind of thing no, knowing knowing you know what what little push to give things at the right time to have this kind of chain effect happen yeah and if and if nothing is really true and everything's up for interpretation or reevaluation uh then i mean anything can happen really in a sense mm. you know mm. uh i don't know if that's good or bad i don't think it's either one well i mean it's it's it's, it's neutral i mean it's neutral <laughs> yeah. in that sense i said it's liberating and but it's also dangerous uh it's disturbing because the thing is if reality's up for grabs there's no guarantee who's going to grab it yeah um, and you you can't prevent other people from grabbing it. And I'm saying Trump probably never heard of chaos magic or postmodernism or whatever. Yeah. But um, he certainly is riding the currents. He's certainly taking advantage of um, this condition in which you know realities become very dubious and questionable and and malleable. Right. And uh, and you know and also because more and more. We have less and less direct contact with any kind of non-mediated reality, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, um, nature, what we used to call nature, unless we go out of our way and we have to organize that. And even now, we can't do it as much because of COVID. So, you right. know, we're more and more dependent on the reality that's mediated uh, through the internet and or whatever the the various different media that that we use to get information about things. And so. Yeah, you have control of that. Um, so there's all these sorts of things, and you know, I, I it's what do you want to say? I mean, it's the sort of thing that strikes me. It's the kind of thing, in many ways, a lot of movies were about in the '70s, you know. And and the other thing, you know, I didn't, didn't I don't mention in, in um, the book, but um, I have an idea for a book about. I don't know when I'll get around to do it, but the whole transhuman, posthuman thing too because mm-hmm. that that's another whole aspect of creating reality we're going to recreate we're going to redefine what it means to be human um and you know we have the technology in order to do that in some way yeah. so uh you yeah know. well it's like god is dead and we killed god and now we want to become god or something like some strange quest that's how i interpret it like when i hear mm-hmm. about transhumanist stuff is like yeah, we're we're gonna usurp that role. We're gonna take that role upon ourselves to be able to completely control and manipulate reality and and ourselves uh, with these technologies. 
um i, mm. I don't know I, I i find that all very disturbing though i don't see mm. anything mm. positive mm. coming out of that yeah you know? no, I, I, un, un, understandable yeah um you know and uh um i mean i'm saying it seems like we have enough warnings about this you know already mm. Mm-hmm. from past times and in the popular culture i would say popular culture the, the, a lot of these films in the 70s uh, you know these dystopian movies you know yeah um seem to be a pre-echo of things but um i mean you don't want to become alarmist and all that but at the same time it just seems like did anybody watch those movies <laughs> did, any, did anybody you know no no we don't want we don't want to um you know give away our humanity to machines and even if we we will be enhanced you know, in that kind of way. But I mean, this, this will, this will happen. I mean, if the technology is there and if it becomes something that you can make widely available, it, it'll, it'll happen, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, some people, I mean, sort of spiritual visionaries, people like Rudolf Steiner, the um, uh, Austrian uh, founder of um, this movement that's known as anthroposophy which is probably most represented today by this steiner education what they call the waldorf schools mm. that are this alternative form of education uh he he, he died well almost 100 years in 1925 um but he he had this vision of this kind of age where technology increasingly becomes more and more dominant and um you know creates a world in which the essence of what makes us human becomes kind of more and more obscure. And you can have a contemporary expression of this in, in a, in a scientific way. If there's this wonderful book called the, the master and his emissary by Ian mm-hmm. McGilchrist. And um, I don't know if you know it, but it's a book. He, um, what he does in this book is reboot the left and right brain discussion mm-hmm. <clears throat> that kind of um, ran out of steam in the nineties uh, when sort of, uh, serious neuroscientists and philosophers of mind they 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 kind of got tired of the pop pop science and kind of new age appropriation of the differences between the, the brains and all that and they kind of walked away from it but McGilchrist, what he does is he says that it's not it's not so much a difference between what the the two hemispheres do it's how they do it mm-hmm. and um fundamentally uh the right brain which is older um has has uh, presents a kind of immediate, you know, direct, global, vague kind of total picture of the world, mm-hmm. and in, in in its immediate reality, and um, it's um, it it developed the left brain, which is a kind of microscope in the sense that its job is to uh, focus on. Individual parts, you know, making up this global, this total kind of picture, mm-hmm. and 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 to gain a, a, a more precise and, and uh, clear um, representation of them. So uh, the left brain kind of unpacks the more holistic kind of global kind of you know um, right uh, picture, picture presented by the right. But what McGilchrist is saying is that over the last couple of centuries, the left brain has gained a dominance and it's what it's been doing is it's been recreating the world outside <clears throat> in its own form and what what it does is it, it, it the left brain fundamentally turns what what is strange into what's familiar because its job is to help us uh you know maneuver through the world mm-hmm. it's, it's basically geared to help us survive in the world where the right brain just presents the world as it is in this kind of immediate isness um so mm-hmm. when we when we drink a glass of wine and you know we we look at um whatever the curtains 
uh, on the window. Ten minutes earlier, they didn't strike us as anything interesting, but we've slipped into this slightly hazy kind of sense of well-being, and suddenly they look much more interesting. It's because more of, of their reality is coming coming into us, and we, we usually ruthlessly cut it out because of the hyper-efficient left brain. But what's happening is that it's it's again it's sort of this notion of technology or this technological way of seeing things is taking over in, in the sense that it's take, actually taking over more and more of the non-mediated world. So mm-hmm. there's less and less of a world that's not already, you know, formed and structured and, and organized through the left brain. And so, again, this is something that um, this is behind many of the problems that we face yeah. these days. And we seem to be in this, this I, I, you know, I don't want to use the word unprecedented because it's, you know, it's obvious, but we seem to be in this time where we have multiple crises happening uh, simultaneously. Yes. And, um, yeah. Well, the, uh, talk about the left brain kind of turning the world into it. It's like an image of itself almost to like a yeah, yeah, reinterpret yeah, it. But exactly. yeah. the, the term anthrop, you know, we live in now in the Anthropocene. That's, mm. that's the term that's being thrown yeah. around. Although yes, there is some contention right, yeah. about whether that's a good term to use or not, uh, whatever. But just for the sake of this yeah. discussion, someone, yeah. I think it was, uh, Oh, I want to say his name is Stephen Jenkinson, or it might have been someone else. But uh, anyway, he I have interviewed him several times. But there was another interview I listened to his, to his where he's talking about the nature of the Anthropocene. I think the way he said it was, it's like you if you try to take two steps away from human beings, you'll make another step towards mm-hmm. another human being. Like there's no way to mm-hmm. really get away from the human world anymore. It's it touches mm-hmm. literally everything in our reality now. Yeah. You can go down to the deepest part of the ocean and you'll find microplastics down there, you know? Like you can't oh, yeah, sure. you know what I mean? You can't go anywhere yeah, yeah, without yeah. the human influence, uh yeah. the effects of it. Um but uh I don't know, I I, I get this uh I get this sense that that entering into this age of nihilism or this age of, of deconstruction, um, because everything is on the table, it's just, mm. it's incredibly frightening. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, that's, oh, that, that's, and, and, uh, but the other, the, uh, the other side of it is that it, 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 it can allow for, you know, uh, profitable, uh, uh, possibilities. Yeah. Um, you know, beneficial ones too, you know, it, it, it is during sort of crises time. I mean, well, this is, <laughs> Um, I'm going to actually giving a talk about this about this essay trickle down metaphysics, but I'm also okay. tagging on at the end of it um, what I call the Goldilocks theory of history, mm. and that's that's based on this idea from the 20th century historian Arnold Toynbee, uh, who wrote this I don't know how many volumes, 20 something volume, um, just called the Study of History, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, this notion that history, what he called challenge and response, this was kind of the mechanism that that civilizations um grow uh, mm-hmm. through uh and uh civilization reaches a crisis where it's confronted with the challenge and if the challenge is too great then um and it fails to you know meet it it, it smashes and it, it collapses very you know very very quickly and then if the challenge is too easy and it overcomes it too easily then um it goes into decline you know it becomes decadent and complacent and mm-hmm. uh it, it goes down too but it takes a bit longer but if the challenge is just right and that's the goldilocks bit you know when the porridge is not too cold or not too hot but just right then the civilization musters the 
creative will to meet the challenge and also enough to keep it, you know, propel it into some new stage where it can grow. Mm-hmm. And uh, we seem to be not bereft of any challenges now. So, um, you know, one wonders if we are facing, this is what Toynbee called the time of troubles that uh, civilizations have. Mm. And I think he has a quote. We think he has a quote where he says something like the nineteen. Yeah, I just, I just, I just found it um, on the net, and I'm using it in the, one of the slides I'll be doing for this talk. Where he says something like, um, "19 out of the 22 civilizations that he um, studied all reached the crisis point that the United States was in," and he was saying this in the 60s. Mm. You know, all, all reached the same crisis point that the United States was in. Uh, at that time and when they went smash mm-hmm. so um he wasn't too hopeful um <laughs> that we were going to i mean uh get through it um but um yeah it does seem that there is an opportunity and mcgilchrist does say that there are times when well the the, the very creative times in in our history was when the two hemispheres worked together right yeah. rather than opposition uh and so i mean you know i'm the, the the immediate right now the immediate time right now seems a bit you know uh, iffy we don't know what's going to happen and uh, after this election and all that and a variety of other things because there's brexit happening here and covid so right. many things are happening right but uh, overall overall i'm hopeful i i have I, I have great faith in um human spirit to overcome the problems that it generates in its own evolution <laughs> well that's great i mean that that would be i i uh... I, I I don't have that perspective personally as much. Um, I wouldn't write books if I didn't. So yeah, no, I mean, I get it. I mean, I, I, it's not, this isn't meant to be disparaging at all. Like it's, it's no, I fine. know, I know. I'm yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm just like, I get it. Like um, there's nothing wrong with it in and of itself. Um, but yeah, you know, and in this actually, I mean, I know we've been talking over well about almost an hour, 15 minutes here. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It's a bit, bit there. I have to have to have uh, dinner soon. Okay. Well, I uh, I just wanted to. I know we didn't really talk about it in too much in depth, and it's something that I personally need to read and get into more, which is mm. the Return of Holy Russia, which is oh, your right, most right. recent book. And of course, yep. we reference mostly in this interview Dark Star Rising, Magic and the Power, Magic and Power in the Age of Trump. Um, what other? Do you have any? Few, I mean, you talk. You said you have some talks coming up and other projects, but like, um, what other? What other things do you have coming down the line here? <sighs> Well, I uh, during over the summer here during the lockdown we had in London, I, I uh, finished a little book, a short book about um, precognitive dreams, dreams mm-hmm. in which bits bits of the future turn up, and uh, my experiences with those and with uh, synchronicity, mm-hmm. you know, meaningful coincidence, um, yeah. that Jung talks about. So uh, that was supposed to come out next year, but COVID has. Uh, wrecked havoc in the publishing world apparently yep. so it's been pushed back an, another year uh, <laughs> i'm sorry to but, hear that um yeah i have i i just did well this sunday i started i did the first of um three uh, lectures in a series i'm doing um just two more coming up next next month uh it's based on my book the secret teachers of the western world which is more or less a history of the west from sort of the esoteric perspective yeah. Um, yeah. In which uh, I the sort of the backdrop to it is McGilchrist's uh, book and this this rivalry between the two sides of the brain. Okay. Uh, but there's two more and all, all that stuff. So you, if you just you know put my name in Google, you'll find lots of stuff. Or you can check out my um, 
blog. It's garylockman.co.uk. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm um, actually keeping busy because um, even though I, I much prefer doing talks, you know, for real uh, with the live audience, uh, being able to do uh, many sort of Zoom talks has uh, actually been quite good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm sure people can find out more information about that at your website, as you mentioned, right? That's true. Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. And I'm on Twitter and, and Facebook as well. So if okay. you want to, you know, yeah, I'll be plugging me, that. I'll be putting that when I record an introduction to this. Um, okay. and I'll be putting it in the description of this episode. And I just want to say Fantastic. like digging, just like listening, I listened to a talk, uh, that you had given about meaning uh, and meaninglessness. Mm. And I mean, there were so many, like, I feel like talking to you, it's like, I could, there's, a, there's a thousand different directions that we could go <laughs> in. And there's so many things I wanted to reference, but, uh, you know, we have a certain amount of time. Next time. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, we'll, we'll, I think we should do this again. And, and I'll definitely be researching your work more in the future. And, uh, and I just really want to thank you for your time, Gary. I really appreciate oh, my, it. Well, my pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you would like to support this project monetarily, here are a few options. You can send a one-time donation through PayPal. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast, and you can treat that like a bit of a tip jar. If you like this episode, or any other episode of this podcast in particular, consider throwing a few bucks Patrick's way. That would really be helpful. And if you would really like to sustain this work and support this project more regularly, consider supporting this project through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness and donate to the production of this podcast for $1 or more a month. And by doing that, you'll gain early access to these interviews and discussions before the official public release. And you will also gain access to some exclusive content there as well. As the great psychedelic bard Terence McKenna said, Take it easy, dude, but take it.